0: is risen, is risen indeed. Hallelujah. But you know, does worship really matter? Does it really matter? From a certain perspective, it's all sort of silly. One author has even described it as a royal waste of time. I mean, what do we do? We get together on a Sunday morning. There's plenty of people who would say you should just sleep in. Why would you bother to get up and to come here? We sing some outdated songs crown him with many crowns. Sometimes we even sing off-key, or other people do. You guys don't, but other people, they sing off-key. We pray some old prayers. We read from an ancient book. We have this little insufficient meal, just a little taste of bread, a little bit of wine. It all just seems so silly. Our, Our little dancing bear show that we have here. From a certain perspective, it looks like worship doesn't really matter. But for those with eyes to see, what happens here, what we have the privilege to be part of, is epic. An author by the name of of Annie Dillard, she says this. I love this. She, She says, it is madness, talking about worship, it is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. We're going to be instituting that next week. (laughs) She says that because, as it says in Hebrews 12, let us worship God with reverence and awe because our God is a consuming fire. When we come before the risen King, this is not just some insignificant little dancing bear show. This is epic. This is the vision of, that St. John received in Revelation. The vision that we heard a moment ago in Revelation chapter 5. This vision of worship. What is worship? Worship is the faith-filled, grateful response to God's gifts given in Jesus. That's what worship is. It's the faith-filled, grateful response to God's gifts given to us in Jesus. And as John catches that vision of what happens in heaven as we worship on earth, he unpacks and displays, he discloses for us the glorious significance of worship. If only we will have eyes to see. And I want to lift up for you this morning three things in particular that we see from John's vision. Why worship is so significant. Because worship reveals, worship gathers, and worship centers. Those three things. First of all, as we see in John's vision, worship reveals. Worship reveals. He finds himself once again in the Lord, on the Lord's day, in the spirit, and he sees the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, speaking of God the Father. And he has in his hand a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Okay, so we always have to do a little bit of decoding what's going on here in Revelation. What John sees is this vision of God the Father, and the scroll we take to mean Scripture, written on both the front and the back, speaking to its, its all-exhaustive comprehensiveness. And what is it that's written on there? What is this speaking of? It's talking about God's plan of salvation, they're written on the scroll. That plan from the foundation of the earth for the salvation of creation, for the reclamation and redemption of his people. That's right there. But the scroll is sealed with seven seals. And so then a strong angel cries out. And I'm interested that it's a strong angel. Are there weak angels? Are there other angels we don't know about? Be that as it may. The strong angel cries out, Who is worthy to open the seals and to unroll the scroll? And no one is found to do it. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth. And St. John bursts into tears. <laughs> He's devastated because here it was so close. He's right on the, the precipice, the cusp of, of seeing the wonders of God's plan of salvation for all creation. But now no one is able to break open the scroll, the word remains hidden. And hidden is a good word for it. Martin Luther, he would talk about this conundrum of what he called the hidden God. What did he mean by talking about the hidden God? Well, he he was talking about how God's will for us and to us is a hidden thing apart from his disclosure to us in Christ. In other words, if you and I were just left to our own devices, our own designs, if we were only left to our own wisdom, we would never really be able to figure out where we stand with God and, and what God is up to. Now, somebody might say, well, I can see God's splendor and his glory in the sunset, and that's true. But you can also see all of the, the pain and devastation wrought in creation, and might think, is this, who is this God? This is God who can create such beauty, but also who allows a world with such pain. It's what Luther calls the hidden God. We need something more. You, you think of the Ethiopian in the book of Acts, And the Ethiopian, he's reading the scripture. He's reading, in fact, that uh, picture in Isaiah, chapter 53. This great prophecy of the suffering servant. But the Ethiopian eunuch, he lacks the key to unlock that revelation. See, It remains sealed for him. He needs someone else to come along and open it up for him. This is St. John's predicament. He sees this vision of the scroll written with God's plan of salvation on both sides, but it is sealed. And so he is weeping aloud. But then suddenly he has a voice come and tell him John, weep no more. For the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, our Lord Jesus, he has conquered. He is the lion and he is the lamb who was slain. He is the victim and he is the victor. And because of Christ Jesus' death and his resurrection, he is the one, the only one, who is able to reveal the scrolls, who is able to break those seals and to open it for you and me and for all creation. Jesus is the one who has that victory, who has that key, the key of David, and he holds those keys of death and Hades. So this is what worship does, See. In worship, the hidden God becomes the revealed God. As we hear the declaration of forgiveness, the proclamation of the gospel, the celebration of the Lord's Supper for you. Now no longer is God a hidden God. No longer are we living in the dark and wondering where we stand with the Lord. But instead, he has revealed himself to us in Christ Jesus. That as we come together week by week and we hear this good news, even receive it on our tongue and in our mouths, That secret is opened up. The scroll is unfurled. And in the unfolding of God's word, you and I have that light. This is the first blessing and gift of worship. It reveals to us the will and the heart of our Lord. But not only that, John gets that revelation. The seal is broken. The scroll is open. But then we see how worship also gathers Worship gathers. Remember, Jesus had said in John chapter 12, and I, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And it said elsewhere in the Gospel of John that Jesus is the one, the only one, who is able to gather in himself all the scattered children of God into one. He's like a heavenly magnet, see? He's the one who gathers together all the people of God, draws us together. And this is what we see, again, in John's vision. Because he goes on, he sees this lamb who was slain. And when he, he regards the lamb, he looks and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of, full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Okay, so what's going on here? You have these 24 elders. Why 24? 24. It's 12 times 2. You're welcome. There's your math lesson for today. But it's 12 times 2. That's significant because it is symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel, the old covenant people of God, and the 12 apostles, the new covenant people of God, so that the 24 together are representative of and symbolic of the whole people of God, all gathered together before the Lamb. And not only are all of the people gathered, both old and new, but so are their prayers gathered. It's this marvelous image that John sees there. The elders are holding these golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. It calls to mind Psalm 141, which says, Let my prayers rise before you as incense, the lifting up of my prayers as the evening sacrifice. Your prayers which sometimes can feel so insignificant and you're wondering whether they're even heard in the heavenly throne room. Your prayers rise before the Lord as a pleasing aroma. All those words uttered in faith, whether it be the the most eloquent involved prayer you ever uttered or just that quick little, help me, help me, help me. It all rises before our Lord as a pleasing aroma as incense in the golden bowls of the elders gathered around the throne. This is the idea when, in our liturgy, we have these prayers that we call the collects. There's the collect of the day, there's the post-communion collect. What does that mean? It's actually pretty straightforward. We call them collects because they are, in a sense, the collection, the prayers of God's people. So I say to you, the Lord be with you, and you say, and also with you. Very good. And it's this way of acknowledging God's presence among us and in so doing, gathering up and collecting the hearts and prayers of God's people. And then we speak this one prayer before the throne as all the prayers of the people of God are collected and gathered before him. This is the beauty and the glorious significance of worship is it gathers us together as people and it gathers together our prayers. And we have seen and experienced at this deep, visceral level over the last couple of years how devastating it can be not to gather. Am I right? We must never forget what a gift it is to gather. The grace that we receive from our Lord to be able to gather. And when we do so, we image and reflect what is happening even in heaven. All the saints gathered together that have their hearts and minds reoriented to the Lord. And this is the third thing that I want to, to lift up before you, this glorious significance of worship because worship reveals, reveals the heart of the Father. It gathers, gathers together the people and the prayers before the Lord, and it centers us. It centers us. Now a quick exercise. You can stay in your seat, keep your eyes open, and I want you to look to your left and to your right, up and down, and all around, anybody dizzy yet? Now, I want to make what is a straightforward observation, but which has profound theological and philosophical implications. As you do that, in our human bodies, we look around, and when you stand up, you you turn around. From our individual human perspectives, the world literally revolves around you. It's just the way that our bodies are made. From your personal, individual perspective, the world literally revolves around you. And some of you are like, well, yeah, I knew that already. Thanks very much. (laughs) Oh, but we have that sense. I mean, it's been said that everybody thinks that they're the hero of their own story, right? We all have this perspective that the world revolves around me. This is the problem with babies, right? Right? Well, we can all agree, it's the problem with babies. Oh, everybody likes babies, but they think the world revolves around them. So, why they're always crying and screaming. We grow up and we become more subtle in our ways to express that the world revolves around us. We all have this innate, self centered, selfish human nature, right? So, what the scriptures sometimes call the flesh. Not talking about our skin, but this selfish, sinful human nature. That thinks, it's all about me, right? I am at the center of the universe. This is why we need worship. Because worship takes us out of this self-centered mindset to a Savior-centered mindset. It re-centers us where we ought to be, around Christ Jesus. Oh, and do we see this in a powerful way in John's vision? John has the succession of three songs And if we can picture it in our mind's eye, actually, the the picture that you have that I'm using for the graphic on the front of your worship folder gets it about right. Because there's these concentric choruses encircling the throne of the Lamb. That, first of all, you have the, the circle of the elders and the four living creatures. John sees them there, and they are singing their song, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. And then in verse 11, he says, I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. And then again, he hears this third circle around the throne, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. John sees these three concentric rings, these choruses around the throne and the Lamb who was slain and who lives. The the people, the elders, if you will, around them, the angels, the heavenly host. And then finally, all creatures of our God and King. Everything that has breath, praising the Lord. This is the same kind of structure that's reflected in the doxology, which we all know, which we've all sung. But the doxology has this kind of, so to speak, double Trinitarian structure to it. We say, praise God, you peoples. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. And then praise him, all creatures here below. And then what? Praise him who? All ye heavenly hosts. Again, those, those three rings. Praise him, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. See? That doxological singing, that worship of our Lord has that Trinitarian shape. And in the midst of it, the lamb on the altar, which is his throne. As we worship him, we have our hearts and minds reoriented, re-centered, where they ought to be. No longer self-centered, but Savior-centered. And this, again, is the significance of this little practice that we returned to last week, of when we received the Lord's Supper. Now, let me be clear about this. However we receive the Lord's Supper, whether it's in a a continuous distribution, one by one, kneeling, standing, however it might be, it is no less the body and blood of our Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. But there is something special and meaningful about when we gather up here around the altar, which is our Lamb's throne, and we encircle that altar side by side as the people of God with Him at the center. That's how we ought to live our lives, right? Side by side as the people of God with Christ at the center of all things. That's where he leads us to be, when we receive his body and blood with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. Which reminds me of a, a story that my friend Chad tells, and I want to close with this. Maybe some of you heard about this too. It's remarkable. He tells a story of how a little Country church, a mini church really, became a mega church overnight without even trying. Did you hear about this? Well, so it started like any normal Sunday. It was just a regular old church. You know, the people were coming in, you know, families and old folks, singles and married, everybody in between. There's a hundred strong or so in this congregation. And they came forward in their Fords and in their, you know, in their trucks and their minivans. And they got out. as an ordinary church, an ordinary Sunday. And at first, nothing looked out of the ordinary. And there was their pastor greeting them, welcoming them as they came in. You know, they liked the guy well enough, but he was pretty ordinary as well. Laughed too hard at his own corny jokes. You know, he's kind of a nerd. But they loved him and they knew that he loved them and was sent to serve them. And so he stood up in front of the church, 9.30 sharp-ish, ready for worship to begin, and still that transformation hadn't happened. Still it hadn't become that mega church. But then the pastor stands up, and he speaks the invocation in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And before the congregation can even finish their amen, that's when it happened. suddenly, Streams of worshipers start coming in. Myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. The so word of God is spoken. Suddenly, the sanctuary becomes filled with the cherubim and seraphim, sweeping down from heavenly heights, coming in from the stained glass and from the steeple up above, filling the sanctuary. As the congregation sang, it's this is the feast. Now the, the sanctuary is packed to overflowing. It's standing room only in the aisles as the angels and archangels all gather together alongside the people of God. And not only that, but there's also the company of the faithful, those who had worshipped side by side with them once upon a time but now had passed on to be with the Lord. There, were, there, there they were as a kind of family reunion praying, echoing the prayers of the people, hearing the glad good news, and one and all with their eyes fixated on the lamb who was slain on the altar. So that as the the prayers were offered and the incense was rising up to heaven and the church, shoulder to shoulder, though they might not have realized it, that mega church, without even trying, gathered together to receive the Lord's Supper, to celebrate the gifts of God, to sing their hearty Amen, Amen, yes, yes, it is so. Worthy is he to receive honor and glory and blessing and power and might. And all God's people said, Amen! And though they didn't realize it, the thresholds shook. The walls reverberated as that mini-church had become a mega-church without even trying. And so it was Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. What was that little country church? It was Trinity Lutheran and every other church that celebrates our crucified and risen lamb. What difference does it make that we gather for worship, we sing some songs, read from an ancient book, receive a little taste, but insofar as we gather as the people of God and hear the word of Jesus and receive his supper, He is here with all of heaven in his train. Amen. May the peace of God that surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. We stand to confess our faith.